Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and joining me here today is Stephen Keenan, founder and CEO of Filter. So, Stephen, can you explain why you started this company and how you arrived at it? What was the journey? Filter is a digital therapeutic uh, that focuses specifically on helping COPD with their psychosocial problems. How I got into it, uh, my uncle has COPD um, and he ended up calling me, I'll never forget, he called me at 11 p.m. on the 1st of May, 2020. Um, so sort of COVID was sort of kicking off. People, you know, there was no lockdowns yet in mm. Europe, but like there was definitely a feeling things weren't right. And he lives in the Philippines. And he proceeded to tell me um, for seven hours on the phone how he had gone from a hospital bed with his condition to now swimming, cycling, setting up a business, building a whole self-management plan for himself. And I always took a lot of interest in this, both from, because he's my uncle, but also I was super interested in this like tech platform he built. Uh, And I guess that was like the start of it. I didn't really know much about the condition until then. Um, And sort of went away, looked at the market, saw it was like ridiculously underserved. Um, as an indication versus, say, diabetes mm. or hypertension, et cetera, um, and realized there's, there's something here, there's something to sort of build. Um, so I'd say that is like the short version of how I got here. I'd say in terms of how I got, why I sort of latched onto it, I, I would say initially was, I always wanted to be, when I was younger, a doctor. Yeah. And I remember when I was like 16, I worked in a... Um, sort of one of the biggest hospitals in, in Ireland. I did a, a sort of a week-long internship or transition year, what we call sort of transition year week. And I was put on the oncology first research and then onto the wards. And the trainee doctor who thought, who I was shadowing thought I was actually a medical student. Because mm. I look quite old. Like I really haven't, you can ask my friends, I really haven't, I look basically the same as I have the last 10 years. <laughs> uh, and he brought me around and he proceeded to basically tell I'd say in the first day, seven or eight patients that they were going to pass away within the next few weeks. The treatment mm. that they were trying to work just wasn't working. And I remember going out and I remember telling my parents and I was like, is that the job of a doctor? <laughs> I was like, that was tough. I was like, there's no way I'm built for doing that day in, day out. Yeah. So I always wanted to build something in healthcare that was maybe not necessarily in the weeds of like on, like on ward. Um, so when my uncle sort of gave me this opportunity, I saw it as a bit of a aligning of the stars and sort of jumped at it. And, and your background's in machine learning? You yeah, said? yeah. So sort of did, I actually studied originally uh, an undergrad, did a dual major in business and law. Um, realized that that wasn't something I wanted to do. So I had my hand at a, another mm-hmm. actually digital health startup in, in college or in uni. Um, and then my intro to that, intro to tech was that plus... Uh, ended up working in Deliveroo quite early on in Ireland um, and then sort of did a few other things and then managed to go back to uh, uni and did uh, computer science with a focus on machine learning. Yeah. Interesting. And um, is that why you focused on digital health and this like kind of digital component of it? Because you worked at Deliveroo, then you mm. went and did computer science, machine mm. learning. Um what, what was the kind of like marriage between that and healthcare for you? Yeah, I think, again, it was probably two things. One being 
in digital health, you do have that, I would say, separation from the front line. Like you yeah. aren't, you, you're not a nurse, you're not a doctor. Like you do have that degree of separation, mm. maybe unless you're a telehealth company or something where you actually are engaging with patients um, via video, a bit different. Um, but also then I think one of the things I ended up doing in between my undergrad and let's say the masters, but I ended up working in Ghana for a while in mm -hmm. microfinancing down there. And I remember the first, so I actually ended up living with a bunch of doctors down there. Mm. And um, they were working in the hospitals, sort of working, but also, I guess, sort of quasi volunteering. And they would come to me like every evening and describe like the situation that they would see, like patients not getting access to medication, like the sort of the go-to was basically that a patient, if they needed medication, a family member would have to go to a local pharmacy, mm. buy it, bring it in because hospitals would be out of business overnight if they if they paid out of pocket. Um, I just realized like, there's no way our healthcare system can scale to these developing countries. Like it's just never, it's never gonna happen. People are still gonna die of you know conditions that you can largely treat. So I think something in healthcare that does scale it's like building things that does scale in healthcare is, is is just super important so i think marrying those sort of two things ended up in in the sort of digital health space yeah because i guess um everyone has a phone mostly yeah well that's the thing like yeah. down there it's it, it like mm -hmm. <laughs> you really have to go down there to appreciate that like the phone everyone has a phone like you mm. you genuinely could be one of the poorest people that i met mm. and you still have a smartphone of some sort like they have different models to us for sure and these mm. things cost like ten dollars to buy down there but there's still a smartphone mm. um and they still have internet you know everyone has internet down there mm. and they all bank via the internet for your yeah. phone credit so they have a completely different system but it's still a means to deliver services and one of those services that you can deliver yeah. within certain boundaries is healthcare. When we talk about digital therapeutics, I think a lot of people get confused between, yeah. you know, you already know what I'm going to yeah. ask, between, you know, digital therapeutics and this lifestyle app, yeah. right? And, and um, there, there's a lot of that uh, maybe recently as well with um, the markets turning yep. and um, valuations going down in that um, people are switching strategies. People are saying, hey, um, we don't want to we don't want to have this be, you know, um, prescribed anymore. We want, um, you mm. know, consumers to pay for it. So what, what are your kind of thoughts in this market and what you're building right now. Healthcare moves very slowly. So digital therapeutics ultimately is a very novel therapy, I would say. Mm. And if you look at maybe historically how therapies have come to market, it's slow. Like changing perception, even around like, how do you do a clinical trial around a, a, mm. a digital therapeutic or a new therapeutic? How do you regulate them? How do you build like the correct team around them? And then of course, how do you actually get paid for them? Uh, and if you read it back, Digital therapeutics from something that like consumers or patients can use mm. have been around for like that are chasing chronic conditions or conditions that are treated uh, with, like from a treatment point of view have been around like 12, 10, 12 years, mm. you know, and we've got through the barriers of, okay, we know what trials and how to run them. We know the teams we have to build. We know the regulatory pathways. And now we're starting to see reimbursement models develop, you know, Europe, Germany, France, Belgium sort of championing that. Um, so I would probably 
say that what happened, the sentiment right now is very, as much as a result of what's happened in the US. And what happened there was they absolutely flew ahead mm-hmm. with what I said around like clinical trials, um, building the correct teams, like getting efficacy, all that sort of stuff. But then they got to the point where they're like, oh, okay, uh, who's going to pay? And they're charging you know, ridiculous amounts for that. Um, whereas you look at Europe and the sort of technology and the business uh, and the company sort of construct was a lot slower. And then a couple of years ago, this business model opened up in by, by way of Diga. And everyone was like, okay, well, now we actually have a reimbursement code, essentially, for these yeah. things. Um, and we know that they're possible and they, they, they're efficacious. Uh, and so I think a lot of digital therapeutic companies are sort of focusing on that market. But is the biggest difference between a digital therapeutic and, you know, a lifestyle app, you know, is, is that really just the reimbursement model, essentially? Like, is mm. who pays for it? Is that the defining difference? No, I think effectiveness is. I mm. think a lot of the consumer apps, uh, I mean, I would probably think, and I won't say any names on them, but <laughs> my, my sort of thought process is there are a few consumer apps out there who have maybe been in the market, in the consumer market for quite some time um, around mental health. Yeah. And we've yet to see any of them really release an effective clinical tool. Mm. And I wonder why that is. Um, like, do they just not have the data, you mean? Yeah. Do they not have the data? I mean, like, those mm. of these, you know, these companies are consumer products. And the consumer products, like, what, what's your main driver there? Retention, engagement, growth. So you, you will mm. optimize that for days because that's what investors want to see. Um, but does that mean you're actually generating the right outcomes, you know, maybe not. I mean, yeah. like the thing is they could be sticky as hell, but like, so is Instagram and that's not good for your mental health. Yeah. So I would maybe look and say, okay, well, these things are super sticky, but put in the hands of people that maybe really need them and maybe versus the people who are using them because they, you know, like the experience. Um, yeah, are probably where they're maybe struggling to build to build, to build that um, efficacy. So I'm a patient with COPD and I'm feeling pretty bad about my COPD. How does your app actually help me? Yeah, so I guess the first thing that we're focusing on is, so the experiences I guess a typical COPD patient would have um, and what makes the life difficult outside of just like the physical symptom management mm. is that they're often sort of profiles, they're often older. So they're often in their sort of late 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, often have a probably a relatively bad lifestyle from a lower socioeconomic background. And the immobility of the condition often means that they probably don't really leave their house a lot. So you have a host of different problems there around like isolation um, from the immobility problems. You have sort of mm. worries around money because you know they probably can't work either. Um, and they're on benefits. And then of course you have the experience that, I mean, I have never felt it. I can only talk to at this point, hundreds of patients that have um, that breathlessness feeling where you wake up every day and you think, is this my last breath, every breath? Yeah. And the fear that that in, sort of encompasses their, or sort of in, um, engulfs their sort of mindset. And so you create all of these sort of things and it becomes like quite a complex case to try solve. 
And mm. suppose what we sort of focus on is what primary thing is, how do you manage that breathless feeling? Because you're going to feel it. How do you stop yourself from getting worked up about it to I the see. point where you might think you're having, for instance, an exacerbation when in reality you're actually having it sort of worked yourself up into a panic attack. Yeah. So that's the sort of primary focus we, we do initially. The sort of second thing then we focus on is how do you reframe how you view life and live your life with the context of the condition? So you're no longer young and healthy. Um, you're sort of maybe older and struggling to do things. Mm. And it's sort of accepting that and adjusting your lifestyle as such. And then sort of the third thing is how do you sort of bring that learning or that sort of um, reframing of your life and try to help people around you understand that as well. I see. So it's um, a habituation to, to essentially the, the symptoms you're definitely going to face, right? Because you need to just get used to the fact that this is how life is going to be now and there isn't really um, a way of solving that. So it's more like, okay, here's how you can cope with these symptoms. Um, and then here's how you can live a new life and here's what people around you need to know. Correct. Yeah. And is there a way you see um, this solution actually being able to improve outcome measures? Because in your uncle's scenario, you talked about him um, being in this hospital bed and then, you know, now being able to actually go and um, mm. enjoy and live his life. Yeah. But that sounds like, you know, the outcomes were actually better after he had changed um, the way that he was doing things. So mm. is there an element of this digital therapeutic that actually allows people to improve their lives and um, actually feel better rather than just habituate the symptoms? Yeah, so I think we have done sort of feasibility and pilot studies and it shows mm. that we are. So our clinical endpoint, primary thing that we look at is mm. the HADS, um, which is hospital anxiety and depression score. Um, in the US, they use PHQs as sort of various different clinical measures. Mm -hmm. And our thing that we're looking at is what's our reduction in the anxiety yeah. um, over time. Um, but anxiety is not the reason you're on, in a hospital bed, right? Well, the, see, the thing is, like, it can be. So you could mm. actually end up being in hospital because you think you're having exacerbation, but you're having a panic attack. And so Interesting. You, so you could get yeah. treated, actually. And this happens. You could go into hospital, say, I'm having an exacerbation. Mm. The doctor, you know, because they're busy or whatever, they might, like, misdiagnose that you are having exacerbation. Yeah. You get them pumped full of steroids. And you get pumped full of maybe prednisone. Mm. That is, like, one of the worst drugs that a human can take. It is... What makes is you, prednisone? Basically, it makes you feel amazing and then it makes you feel awful. Um, you yeah. Essentially, yeah, it makes you wired. Like that, that call that my uncle sat on with me for seven hours. Um, so right through my night, it was his early morning because he was in the Philippines. He was on prednisone at the time. Mm. Um, and it's genuine. It's, you, are, you are wired um, as your body sort of is kicked into sort of fighting um, yeah. fighting things. Um so yeah, I mean, there is, there is, there is, a, there are cases where the anxiety that is caused from your COPD makes you, uh, therefore, you end up in in hospital because of that, um, not necessarily because your COPD, because the anxiety uh, has got you there. Yeah. Um, but I think for us, like when 
people start feeling a bit more confident in their condition and reframing it, yeah. they start to like see life a bit differently. So we have countless sort of patient testimonials and feedback from from our trial users around this, like people, you know, having not left their house for six months and having sort of passed through the therapeutic, having I left. See. And yeah. so it's like engaging with society again and being able to actually live their life a bit better than they were before. Um, and that's like, you know, this is how we view it, just therapeutic one. This is sort of like an onboarding, how we look at it, sort of like an onboarding onto COPD. There's obviously like various other different ways that you can, from a long-term management point of view, intervene as well and help the patient. Mm. But we very much see this as the sort of first and, and the most essential step. So this is more like, um, it's more like the reason why they are not really interacting with society is because of a mental block, right? And that you help them overcome that. Um, I think it can be part of it, yeah. Um, and, and to be fair, I mean, like those, the the framing and the framing that they have is is often very valid. You know, they may have gone for a walk and experienced an exacerbation. Mm. Therefore, the association with walking is I'm going to have an exacerbation. Yeah. So if you go into a pulling rehab program, which is basically a bespoke physio exercise rehabilitation program for COPD patients and cystic fibrosis, et cetera. Yeah. Um, if you go into one of those and a nurse tells you, okay, you're going to, we're going to now do like, you're going to do 500 steps tomorrow or for the next week. And then we're going to build you up to a thousand. You're like, hold on. No, I'm not. Because last time I did that, I had an exacerbation. Um, so it's about sort of realizing that the exacerbation happened maybe because you either in coincidence or maybe you push yourself a bit too more, much and it's about sort of it's about finding your limit um, so there is like a host of things you have to solve there for yeah and so you were you were at um, Deliveroo mm. um, before and I would almost consider that as big tech I don't know if other others would but okay. um, how would you advise people who are you know in big tech um, and want to become, you know, a healthcare CEO, um, what's the number one thing they should do? Um, mm. And what's, what is, um, you know, example of that, that you um, kind of live by? Young founders excel exceptionally well in new industries because essentially they can be, you know, they can stand up on LinkedIn or they can stand up at a conference and say, I know them, I know everything, you know, because no one is really there to say, no, I know more or it's some other young person or so. The industry is so young that anyone who stands up can technically be the, <laughs> the, the knowledge person, the most knowledgeable person in the room. Whereas with healthcare, you know, it's as old as time. And it's yeah. like a young person coming in, there is definitely skepticism mm. from a large majority of the industry. Uh, and especially someone who didn't study medicine in, in uni. Mm. Um, so what I would say is, understand that things move like slightly slower um, <laughs> and that knowing the right people is yeah. important um, and maybe not necessarily jumping into something thinking that you have the solution but actually making sure you talk to the right people yeah the caveat to that is ensure you stay outside of the box because getting too into the system will just tunnel your vision on things and then I think this is going to be a fun one. This is always uh -oh. a fun one. <laughs> What's the number one thing not to do 
as um, you know a founder CEO? And what's an example of a situation you know that's happened to you? Yeah, I actually <laughs> I actually have a notion list where I write. So I, every week I have this like um, I create a page and it has like personal sort of not necessarily specific yeah. tasks to the company. My own personal one where it's sort of next week's task that that will probably go into stuff I need to work personal tasks. And then I have like this week's notes um, and then I have some other headings. And this week's notes is bench basically just a year and a half of if I was to start over again, just <laughs> read these and make sure you don't do any of them. Yeah. So if I had that on me, I could probably pick something out. But definitely the thing that comes to mind because um, it was something that probably derailed my thinking for quite some time and I only probably recognized it mm. the, 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 the point in time at which I had the thought only a few days ago. Um, so we originally were building hardware. Um, mm. And the reason for that was we actually didn't start off as a digital therapeutic, um, a pure digital therapeutic. We had um, a companion device yeah. um, because we were focusing a lot on that physical condition monitoring. Um, which I still think there's a lot of value there, but mm. it's sort of, you know, the way I look at it, this is a very long-winded answer. The way I look at it though is we were trying to help, let's say a patient wanted to go from self-management level one to self-management level 10. We mm. were helping them with level like four, five, six, where in reality, a lot of them need help at one, two, three. So that's why we really made that sort of jump back to that stages. But we ended up building hardware and I talked to a very well-known investor, hardware investor, um, probably the most well-known hardware investor in the world. And I sort of described the situation because at the time we were integrating into existing devices. Mm. And he was like, a hardware investor will never invest into a company that's not building its own hardware. Mm. And I maybe took that wrong, maybe took that incorrectly, and some other data points that I was looking at and said, we need to build hardware. <laughs> and yeah. off we went on a, uh, a significant, spent a significant amount of time, not a lot of money to be fair, but a significant amount of my time and my co-founders, Tom Andrews, on building hardware. Mm. Um, and we eventually pivoted out of that into using existing hardware, existing hardware solutions again and then eventually out of that. Um, so my thing is, and there's loads of examples, other examples I can give is, don't take everyone's advice. Like, yeah, just gosh. take it and ask yourself, like, this could be Bill Gates. It could be Steve Jobs telling me this advice. But if you do feel it's probably wrong, don't take it just because it's from someone who you respect. Yeah, and I think that um, in the earlier stages, mm. um, founders are very keen to take advice from VCs. Oh, yeah. Um, but... In some cases, um, those individuals may not have built a company before, right? Mm. Um, well, so I think in Europe, it's probably most cases, right? In Europe? Yeah. I mean, what's the start? Like, it's a significant majority of, I think, investors in Europe have never but started like, a company. I think, I think it was over 70% yeah. of VCs have never actually had operational experience in a company. Mm. Mm. So I guess... Um, you know, they they have seen a lot of companies sure. and they've um, 
gone through, you know, becoming um, investors through the financial routes. Yeah. But how much do they actually know about building a company and then building your company? Mm. I think it's quite dangerous in a way, right? Because it, it seemed to have taken up a lot of your time. No, for sure. And I yeah. think there's like, there's a difference between maybe lessons you can learn from the sidelines and lessons you have to learn in the weeds. So mm. I think a really good example of like things you can probably give someone advice on, but never really have done yourself is how to sort of play people, like how to do a deal. I feel like that's something that you can nearly give the best advice in the world in, but then when you're actually in the position, you're sort of like, how do I pull this together? Yeah. Uh, but then there's th things that are maybe a little bit more, you actually have to have lived it to be able to give advice on it. Um, and there's just like yourself, like, you know, how many times have you done things that you're like, yeah, I mean, I probably would do that differently. If you were to do, <laughs> if you were to do number two, yeah, uh, and again, like that's not something you're going to learn reading a reading a blog post or listening to someone because it's that minor detail that no one really talks about for a specific case. My um, observation for VCs is like often the ones that have the operational experience, um, nothing really phases them. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, you know, if you've built a startup, you've probably had like 9 million things go wrong. Mm. Um, and so that's the one thing um, like with our VCs is that um, at, uh, and like I, I always rave on about them, but I do really love Nina Capital um, because both the partners are ex-founders and mm. um, they really empathize and understand when things go wrong because they've both built companies before. Mm. But um, I can imagine that, you know, if you're just watching from the sidelines and you see all this like shit happening, you're like, oh my gosh, you mm. know, um, you're probably freaking out because you've never really seen like the extent of how bad yeah. things can get. Yeah. Um, and as founders, it's like, Sometimes that's like, you know, just another Tuesday. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that was a good day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What is the impact you want to leave with Filter? Giving people the opportunity to like participate in society. You never know where that will go. So like optimizing people's health. And I'm not talking about some person that does 150 kilometers a week on the bike runs three marathons and you know has six different whoops and etc off optimizing them i'm talking about the people who have unfortunately maybe found themselves in a you know a, a, a bad health scenario if you can help them improve their health you don't know like what the downstream effect that is for those people like does someone who mm. we help become like a world-class author does someone, yeah. you know, get to spend a lot of time with their grandkids? Like the fact that this condition affects, okay, diagnosed 200 million, undiagnosed plus diagnosed, probably more like five or 600 million. Like that's a lot of people you can help. Mm. 